Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Georg Streeter about his new book, Model Systems in Biology, History, Philosophy, and Practical Concerns, published by MIT Press last month, August 2022. Georg Streeter is professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at the University of California, Irvine. He's the author of two books on nervous system evolution, as well as an introductory college-level textbook, Neurobiology, A Functional Approach. And Georg, welcome to the show. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really pleased to have you here speaking about this book today. And would you begin by telling us a bit about your background and how you decided to tackle the formidable topic of model systems in biology? Sure. Uh, So I consider myself a comparative neurobiologist, which means that I'm interested in how the brains of different animals, different species, how they compare to one another, how they're different, how they're the same. So for example, I've been very interested in how human brains differ from those of other primates. Or I used to work on parrots, how parrot brains are different from, say, the brains of a chicken or a pigeon. So I used to do experimental research on fishes, on birds, trying to understand why these animals are different from one another behaviorally, uh, how they became different and that kind of thing. But over time, I became more interested in in scholarly activity rather than experimental research. It's because I I developed sort of a taste for book writing, I guess, uh, where you can synthesize information and... uh, uh, so I wrote a book, a couple of books on, on, on brain evolution, but they're very, brain evolution is a, is a fairly small, specific field. I mean, they do good work, but it's fairly, fairly limited um, breadth. And so I became interested in trying to figure out how can I expand the relevance of comparative neurobiology to other areas. And so I wrote a co- college-level textbook, like you mentioned, on, uh, on neurobiology. It wasn't explicitly evolutionary, but I, I focused on, you know, how the brain is an evolved organ that helps animals solve particular problems. And that's sort of an evolutionary perspective. So that went reasonably well. And then about three years ago, I, I uh, started to think about going even broader and trying to tackle this problem you mentioned of, of model systems in biology and especially in biomedical research. And one way to put it is that I wanted to make my comparative way of thinking translationally relevant. That's kind of a buzzword, but it basically means how can we make that thinking about species differences and similarities relevant to, to biomedical research, to applying that knowledge of model systems to humans. And so I, I just started working on it. It was, it was hard. It took a while. Um, but uh, uh, it's been a somewhat rewarding process. Yeah. Well, and there are so many species to consider, whereas when you were uh, looking at the differences, you mentioned working with parrots and fish, and, and you probably didn't look at as many. There's an awful lot of species that you've mentioned that get used as, as models. 
Yeah. So, for example, if I try to compare the brain of a of a fruit fly or a, a, a roundworm to the brain of a of a primate, you know that they're just so alien from one another that that uh, I couldn't really write much that is intelligible about that in in terms of brain evolution. But um, yeah, so I had to learn a lot about these other species that I yeah were not in my comfort zone. So that was a little challenging. But. Yeah, I mean, that's it's such a, a, a broad um, area. So the book begins with a chapter on two crises in biomedical research, which are uh, the translatability crisis and the replicability pr- crisis. But I want to ask you about the translatability crisis. As you just mentioned, translational research has been such a buzzword term in recent years, and it, it sounds really aspirational. So what is the crisis and what are its implications for biomedical developments? Yeah, so it's a hard question because I think translation, what, what we mean by translation is that, that often people create disease models in animals. So they'll, they'll engineer some animal to develop symptoms that are similar to a human disease. And then they try various drug treatments or other kinds of therapies to see if they can make the animal models better, right? And if that works, then they say, well, let's see if that translates to humans. That's what we mean by translational research. But to do that, you have to go, uh, you know, find the resources to run clinical trials and that kind of thing on humans. And the failure rate of these clinical trials is something on the order of 80 to 90 or more percent, uh, depending on the type of disease. So that's that's a lot of uh, failure. And it's significant, you asked about the implications, it's significant because the median cost of a clinical trial for an approved drug is like, I looked it up this morning, is $19 million, okay? So if you have, you know, if one out of 10 uh, if nine out of 10 trials fail, that's a lot of money. And it impacts all of us because it means our drugs are more expensive. Our insurance premiums are expensive. Uh, sometimes pharmaceutical companies just say, hey, I, we're going to pull out of, say, neurological disorders. We're not going to try to develop more drugs there because we're losing way too much money over there. We'll try some other specialize in some other medicines. So there's a real cost to those high failure rates. Right? And you know, so I spent a lot of time thinking about like what is causing those high failure rates, and and um, there, there are clearly several causes. It could be that some of the research on animal models is not strong enough. Really, maybe people need to do better studies. Maybe the clinical trials aren't good enough. Um, but I, I think off, often, and so this is the premise or the, the conclusion of the book, is that often these trials fail because there are important differences between animals and humans or between cell culture models and intact animals. And that's why these trials fail, because it's just not, it's, the translation doesn't work easily. So the question for me then was, can we do better? Uh, can we try to figure out, you know, what are those problems? So there's a principle for choosing appropriate models that you mention frequently throughout the book. And that's called experimental convenience, which you attribute to August Crow, the Nobel Prize winning physiologist. Uh, I got the impression that the principle isn't simple to define, but uh, I'm going to ask you anyway. Would you try to define it? Sure. I mean, I'm going to steal Crow's definition. So I I looked it up. In in 1929, he wrote a paper in which he said, for a large number of problems, there will be some animal of choice or a few such animals on which it can be most conveniently studied. So 
you know, I think that's that's undeniable. It's very clear. If you do kind of research, say you want to create a transgenic animal, a genetically modified animal, you're going to have to work with an animal where you actually have the technology to do that. So you might work on a mouse or a fruit fly or a worm or even yeast. Uh, you probably wouldn't pick, you know, a hippopotamus or a horse uh, where we just don't have that technology. And there are other dimensions of convenience too. So fruit flies, for example, are very convenient because you can they reproduce very quickly. They're very small, so they don't need a lot of space. They're relatively easy to feed and all sorts of things that are, make them very convenient for research. Um, another good example is if you're trying to do uh, develop a new treatment for heart defect, for example, uh, you probably wouldn't use a fruit fly. Uh, you would be it would be better to use uh, an organism with a larger heart, uh, like a dog or a pig. And in fact, uh, a lot of treatments for heart disease uh, were first developed using dog hearts. Uh, this usually happened some time ago. Um, so, for example, there's a there's an interesting movie that I like uh, called Something the Lord Made. It tells the story of Vivian Thomas and his colleague uh, who developed a treatment for blue baby syndrome using dogs. Um, so it's hard to hear that, but you couldn't have done that uh, on mice because they're just too small. Um, so it's clearly true that convenience is an important factor. What, what, where, where Crow's principle gets, gets difficult is that people sometimes think that whatever they find in the most convenient animal will generalize to other animals, including humans. And that often isn't true. And Crow himself was very much aware that animals differ from one another, and he was studying lots of different animals. But what he was doing is he was using general principles to try to understand the differences between animals. So he, he was, he was, uh, it was a fairly sophisticated uh, way to think about it. So, for example, you might try to um, recognize that, you know, dogs can't eat chocolate or that you can't give aspirin to cats, they'll die. Uh, and you might say, okay, that doesn't mean all the metabolic pathways, all the biochemistry is totally different in dogs and cats than it is in us. It just means that there are some small implementations of the general principles that are different and uh, that's it's those those implementations that when they vary that's when translation or generalization across species that's when it gets difficult uh, so um, yeah so i would say crow himself studied a lot of different animals and we'd probably be good uh, well advised to also study not just one model or no models but multiple models and try to understand how they differ from one another how they're similar and, uh, of course, you still have to work with the most convenient ones. Well, it seems like it, yeah, it seems like at different times in history, different animals were considered convenient. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I th- a lot of this has to do with sort of ethical questions, uh, animal uh, rights, animal welfare. And in the early days, say, uh, you know, in the early days of experimental physiology, people used a lot of dogs, for example, uh, horses, uh, guinea pigs, right? We all hear about guinea pigs being used as experimental animals. Uh, well, those are all pets, uh, largely, because that they were convenient. They were easy to get. But then people became more and more sensitive to not wanting to cause suffering in, in animals with through their experiments. And then they sort of shifted towards pests and animals we use for food. So that's why we started using rodents 
and chickens and sometimes pigs. Uh, but it's tricky, right? It's uh, uh, because who knows? Who, what was to say that a pest animal is less sentient, less capable of suffering uh, than a pet animal? Um, sometimes people say, you know, you should use animals lower on the phylogenetic scale, right? Uh, but with us at the top, and then presumably sort of, you know, flies and other worms at the bottom. But it's a very fuzzy concept that evolutionary biologists don't really think makes makes much sense uh, because who's to say which animal is higher or lower it depends on your criteria and uh, so it's 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 difficult different people make different compromises one of the things i should say is that that's very interesting is that people are using more and more cell culture systems right so where they take for example human cells and they grow them in cell culture um, sometimes very complicated cell cultures. And the nice thing is then you don't have to worry about species differences. These are human cells. But you still have, and you don't have the ethical concerns, right? But you still then have to worry about like, oh, does my cell culture system behave the way the intact animal would? And often that's not the case. So, so then it's a modeling problem more than an ethical problem. Yeah. 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 Some people are saying our cell culture models are getting so sophisticated that maybe we start should start worrying that maybe these mini brains that we can grow in culture, maybe they're becoming sentient. But I, I think that's pretty far away. Um, so there's a lot of interest and promise in these, especially human stem cells, in part, I think, because it removes some of the ethical barriers and the species difference barriers. Yeah. So I was I was going to ask you about animal ethics because it's such a, a delicate area, and but it's one that you certainly tackle and it's really important. Um, and I've, you know, you've, you've sort of gone over it a bit. Is there anything else you wanted to add about uh, where the main ethical considerations for researchers are? Um, I think, I think it's largely a personal decision. I think a lot of different people are going to draw different lines of what they're comfortable working on. So for example, a lot of people are comfortable working on zebrafish, especially zebrafish embryos, because they don't think zebrafish are very, you know, capable of thinking or things like that. But I used to do a lot of work on fishes and uh, I'm not convinced that fishes are, you know, like robots, <laughs> they, 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 they have feelings, uh, but it is clearly, you know, a question of gradations. And I think everyone is gonna have different, um, like I said, different thresholds for what they're willing to do and how concerned they are about their research really being able to be translated to humans. So it's sort of a compromise you have to make. Uh, and one, one more thing I wanted to say is that different countries also, different cultures have slightly different approaches to this. So for example, Japan and China are um, quite interested in doing a lot of primate, non-human primate research, uh, whether it's marmoset monkeys or macaques. Um, but in, in the UK or in the US, uh, you know, it's, it's much more li- limited. And I think these are largely cultural differences. Uh, who, will, who will be more successful in developing human therapies? I don't know. It's not clear to me. Well, I think they've changed a lot over time. And you mentioned, I can't remember which researcher it was, but was sort of advertising mice as a, a little <laughs> army that was going to, uh, you know, help human. And I remember when I was in elementary school, it must have been first grade or so, somebody came to our classroom and they 
I don't remember what they said to us, but they handed us all these little um, little jars with white paper on the outside and a little envelope. And huh. we were supposed to take it home and put money in it. And it's what it said was, send a mouse to college. And so they were buying mice for their research, but we thought that we were sending mice to college. So that's very, that's very strange. Yeah. It's an interesting, you know, that's been very interesting to read about the early history uh, of how, how mice became so popular. I mean, it's undeniable that nowadays they, especially for biomedical research, they are, you know, some people call it mouse model monotheism, like mice reign supreme and, and, uh, you know, and maybe it's just undeniable that they're very convenient to work on, but there's also questions about, you know, how good are they really as a model? Because convenience isn't everything, right? It's gotta be a trade off with, uh, you know, how well does it actually work as a model? Yeah, and, and also suffering considerations with mice too, yeah. Um, so moving from another sort of tortuous area, you mentioned a few times the dictates of publishing, and that's an issue that all researchers grapple with. And then specifically in chapter four, you write that, and I quote here, in general, researchers tend to prefer to study models that allow them to obtain statistically significant replicable results in relatively short amounts of time. And then you add, given the importance of research productivity in academic promotions and grant reviews, this makes good sense. So I wonder, do you see this as a problem generated by the machine of publication dictating how research should be done? Or is there good reason in terms of scientific progress and clinical developments to do things the way that academia and publishing demand? Uh, that's a that's a big question. Um, you know, I, I think from a researcher perspective, you try to if you're trying to run an experiment, you want to standardize as much as you can, sort of keep the variation, you know, uh, to a minimum. So you don't want to change equipment halfway through. You don't, you want your animals to be fairly standardized. That's why people use a lot of inbred animals uh, so that they have uh, minimal variation there and. It does make good sense that you, you're much more likely to see statistically significant effects if you use highly standardized procedures and and, and animals. But I, I think it was what's his name Fisher, a famous statistician. He said, you know, basically, it makes good sense to standardize. But if you standardize too much, your results might only apply to that highly standardized set of conditions, and then it doesn't generalize. And so that, that is sort of an inherent problem. Uh, the larger question you ask about, you know, how you evaluate scientists, or should we evaluate scientists on sort of how many papers they publish or how important their research is and how well it, say, generalizes? That, I, I don't really have a good answer to that. I, I was on my tenure and promotion committee at my university for three years, and people try to understand you know, the importance of research and not just count papers. But it's very hard to understand. It's very hard to ignore, you know, the fact that, you know, one person publishes 20 papers and another one only two. And then you're left to try to figure out, well, how important are those two papers? That's very hard to do. Uh, in this context, I want to say one more thing that I think is, is, is uh, probably the best way to change things is to have a little top-down control from the funding agencies. So um, 
a few years ago, the National Institutes of Health, which is the main biomedical research funding body in the U.S., um, had an official policy that said people should be using considering sex as a biological variable. In other words, in both clinical research and preclinical research, they should consider, are they studying female animals, male animals? They should keep track. Maybe they're different from one another, and you need to know that. And initially, that created a lot of resistance by researchers. They said, well, now I've got to have twice as many animals, and you know, it's going to slow me down in my research. But I think it has largely worked in the sense that people are now much more sensitive to the possibility of sex differences when it comes to diseases and other uh, other areas of biology. And so I think maybe we can do something like that and, and sort of from the top down say, hey, people, we need to also be more interested in species differences. Uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm too optimistic there, but that's what I think might, might work. Yeah. Well, that leads nicely to my next question, actually, which is another observation that comes up repeatedly in the book is about whether differences, differences between the model and the target or between the different model species, um, whether those differences matter much depends on your perspective. At one point you say it matters whether you see the glass is half full or half empty. Um, so could you explain that a bit? What in particular does it depend on? Because it seems to me that it might matter a great deal to the end result if the end result is developing a, a useful and effective treatment for humans. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think it matters a lot. And I, I have to admit that I'm a little bit biased here in the sense that I came at biology from the perspective of animal behavior, where it's, it's the, this, the differences between species hit you, you know, right in the face. It's hard to ignore. If you're coming at biology, maybe from physics or chemistry, and you're more interested maybe in molecular biology, you're more interested perhaps in looking at sort of universal principles and, and, and things like that. So I think different people, depending on the background, are going to have different tendencies to emphasize either similarities or differences. And this is a very old problem. I found a wonderful quote by Francis Bacon from 1620, one of the founding fathers of the scientific method, who said, you know, who, who pointed out that people have different predilections that way. And he said, the trick is not to do either one in excess. It's like you shouldn't, you know, uh, focus on similarities so much that you ignore any differences. And you shouldn't you, focus on differences so much that you ignore any similarities. And I think that's really where the trick is. And uh, and I think sort of another way of looking at it is that sometimes a person or maybe an entire field can also change. So when you're first confronted with a problem, uh, you're making lots of observations and it's all chaos. In science, often people have very good views and they're, they're trying to make sense of things. When you're at that stage, you tend to focus on, you know, you're looking for patterns, you tend to identify similarities, and you try to ignore the noise, the variation. But once you, I'd say, once you have that principle, the pattern identified, then is a time to say, okay, now that I have that, let me try to figure out if I can make sense of all these differences. So it gets a little abstract, but I, I thought I'd give you a, a specific example of uh, that's really interesting. So guinea pigs, if you give them penicillin, they'll die. Regular guinea pigs, if you give them penicillin. And that, of course, is, is you know, you might say, well, that's, that's just an anomaly. We're just going to ignore that. That's noise because essentially all animals 
benefit from giving, uh, yeah, if you give them penicillin, uh, because it, it kills the bacteria. But, you know, someone who's interested in differences might say, well, what about guinea pigs? Why are they, um, why do they die from penicillin? And yeah. there's actually, we have a bit of an answer, which is that if you have germ-free guinea pigs, that is, if you raise them in conditions where there, they, there are no germs around, so they develop, they don't develop a microbiome. Right? Nowadays, a lot of people have heard about the microbiome, all the different bacteria that grow in your gut. If you give those guinea pigs, uh, the germ-free guinea pigs that don't have a microbiome, they, they're okay with penicillin. Hmm. So what that probably means is that what happens in a normal guinea pig with a microbiome is the penicillin kills most of the bacteria, but they have some penicillin-resistant toxic bacteria that then take over and kill the animal. And most other animals just don't have that. And so I think that's really interesting that you can you can try to understand and explain these species differences. You don't have to ignore them. You can try to understand them. And I think in the long run, that will help you get a better sense of, you know, uh, how organisms work and how they respond to treatments and disease. Yeah. And I guess it raises the question of, of how else might guinea pigs be different as guinea pigs are used so much and are there other drugs? I mean, once you know that mechanism whereby the penicillin kills the guinea pigs, okay, you, um, so you know, I you think might avoid- it was, I think it was scurvy, you know, the, the, the disease oh, yeah. that sailors get when they, yeah. when they are the a long time without fresh food. Yeah. Vitamin uh, C. Yeah. Right. So people try to study that in pigeons and various other animals with little success because it turns out most animals can synthesize their own vitamin C. But humans can't. They need to eat it, basically. They need to get it from their diet. And so do guinea pigs. So guinea pigs have something in common with humans that other animals don't. And that was a big, big factor in, uh, you know, how people finally understood why scurvy happens. And what animals did they end up using as a model for scurvy? The the guinea pigs. The guinea pig, yeah. Yeah. So, Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to say, go figure, go figure. So the differences do matter. Differences do matter, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So then in chapter five, where you cover models and therapies for some of the major disease categories like cardiovascular diseases, cancer, uh, you list some of the animal parts used in assays to test ACE inhibitors. And these are cell-free extracts of dog lung, in vitro pieces of rat colon, and guinea pig intestine. There's a guinea pig again. Sounds very disgusting, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Not not as a a good mix, but but where where do these choices come from? Were were they convenient models, for instance, because they were what was available in the lab, or were they based on a more careful assessment of their suitability? Um, You know, so this happened a while ago, and I'm not entirely sure of all the background, but I take an ACE inhibitor myself to help me reduce blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And ACE stands for angiotensin-converting enzyme. So there's an enzyme that converts angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2, and that the, the angiotensin 2 constricts blood vessels. And when you constrict blood vessels, your blood pressure goes up. So if you inhibit the enzyme that does that conversion, you should lower blood pressure. That's how it works. It was discovered initially by uh, from the study of pit viper venom, because pit vipers, these are snakes, uh, when they kill animals by injecting this toxin into them that just crashes their blood pressure. Uh, 
And so when people figured that out, they said, okay, let's take a closer look at pit viper venom and figure out, well, what in that venom, because it's that snake venom is a very complicated mix of lots of different things. What is it in there? What's the active ingredient that reduces blood pressure? To do that, how are you going to do that? You're going to have pit vipers bite lots of you know guinea pigs or, or snakes, and for each one of these molecular components of the viper, you're going to have a whole new set of animals. That's killing a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. So what people realize is like, hey, maybe we don't need to use entire animals. We could just use bits of tissue uh, and see if, you know, when you apply that, that, that venom component, whether they are still making angiotensin II. Uh, so what tissue are you going to use? They said, well, let's use tissue that expresses angiotensin II because apparently that's where it is made. Uh, and so that turns out to be mostly smooth muscle. So there's a kind of m- muscle cells that surround blood vessels, but they also you can find them in the lung uh, and you can find them in the colon and they basically have that enzyme in them. So that's why people focused on these tissues uh, and... Then the question is, well, why did they use, for example, dog lung? That was sort of the, the earliest studies were done on dog lung. Um, well, dogs have large lungs, so you can make lots of slices of dog lung tissue. And so, you know, you can set up lots of parallel culture uh, assays and run your experiments. Um, and so nowadays we probably wouldn't use dogs. That was done in the late 50s and early 60s when people were still using dogs fairly regularly. Now, uh, you know, they'd probably be using different cells. But um, you asked, why are they doing that? So that was, it was sort of a question of experimental convenience. And, and they, they were using dogs because they were large in some sense. That's a, you know, that's a, a basic convenience, but a, you know, yeah, a good one. I mean, I wouldn't use a dog, but. Uh. Yeah. Um, so then in the same chapter discussing cancer research, and this is something you uh, mentioned at the beginning of our talk, um, when you were talking about the translatability crisis, when it comes to cancer, only 5% to 11% of anti-cancer drugs that showed promise in mouse models have actually passed their clinical trials in humans. But you also note that there's been some significant success this way. So can you give an idea of the cost benefit of this research or even how do we go about determining the cost benefit and who determines it clinically, ethically, and financially? Because that's a lot of research. Yeah, you don't ask little questions, do you? <laughs> that's no, a big question. I for the big ones. Uh, yeah, I mean... First off, it, it was very important to me not to present sort of a one one sided perspective to say, you know, oh, it's like all, all animal research, you know, is important and therefore it doesn't matter. You should just do it or to go the other to the other stream and say, look, sometimes it doesn't translate and therefore you should just, uh, you know, um, stop doing animal research. It was it was sort of a cost benefit analysis. But the question of who does that? Uh, that's a really hard question. I already mentioned uh, funding agencies play a role. Individual researchers, I think, play a big role. Industry plays a role. When it comes to cancer, I mean, cancer moonshot, right? Presidents and vice presidents play a role. Um, so I, I don't have a really good answer for that. I think it's sort of an ecosystem that, that makes these decisions. Uh, specifically about cancer. So cancer is really interesting because 
Uh, it's incredibly difficult to cure cancer in general because there's not just one cancer. There are many different ways to, for cells to sort of go off the rails and start proliferating out of control. And that means there are many different treatments, you know, for different types of cancer. Uh, the flip side of that is that many treatments only work on very specific cancers. They're not working. They don't work. At least the modern ones don't work on all cancers. So that makes it difficult. For example, if you think about running a clinical trial for a promising cancer drug, well, you're not quite sure which cancers it's going to work for. So you need to enroll in your clinical trial people with this type of cancer, that type of cancer, this type of cancer. So it makes for very big, complicated, large, and expensive clinical trials. Uh, that's a problem, as I mentioned already. That explains in part why cancer drugs tend to be very expensive. Um, another sort of aspect of this is if you're a pharmaceutical company, you want a blockbuster drug that can cure as many cancers as possible. You can't really afford to develop a drug that only works in you know um, a relatively small number of patients. So it's it's there are compromises and cost benefit analyses being done all the time at all levels by these various players. Um, you mentioned that that there there has been some recent progress, and I think there's a really interesting. Um, sort of recent breakthrough in cancer, which is a, a type of therapy called immune checkpoint therapy. So the, the basic idea there is people discovered in animals that some cancer cells suppress the immune system. And the immune systems, if it weren't suppressed, it would be able to detect, hey, these cancer cells, they're weird, they're foreign, and we're going to kill them, we're going to get rid of them. But the cancer cells, it's sort of as they're like at war with the immune system. There's a little bit of a battle going on. The cancer cells, if they can suppress the immune system, then they can proliferate. And so what, what medical researchers said, hey, what if we suppress the suppression, you know, basically stop the cancer cells from suppressing the immune system? Then we should be able to boost the immune system and have it get rid of the cancer. And that does work doesn't work for all cancers, but it works for a good number of cancers. And I think that's a really interesting idea because it's also not, it's also, it's working with the body's own defense system and boosting them. And I think that's going to, that's a very promising approach, not just for cancer, but maybe also for other diseases, especially in the brain. Um, yeah. And, and maybe I'll say one more thing. Well, one of the things that, that, uh, comes up when you're discussing this is, is this idea of precision medicine or personalized medicine. Mm. And, you know, everyone wants precise medicine, right? Which kind of means, you know, I just want a very precise diagnosis. I want to know exactly what kind of cancer I have, for example. But it's also, you know, the, the flip side of that, again, is, is that you have to realize also different people are going to have different um, predispositions to developing particular kind of cancers. Not all people are the same, just like humans are not like animals in all respects. Not all people are the same. And I think you're becoming more and more sensitive to that, that different people are going to respond differently to different treatments. You see that a lot with neurological drugs, for example, that antidepressants, you have to try a bunch of different things to see which one works for you. So that's sort of personalized medicine. And, um, I'm just hoping that once we recognize that humans are different from one another, we also become more aware that humans and animals or non-human animals are also different. And I think we tend to ignore that. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that kind of opens up a whole other area when you're looking at different drugs that work for different humans. Um, so, okay. So that, we haven't answered the, um, the, the full cost benefit analysis is <laughs> impossible to answer. Um, and I guess the moonshot approach is really impossible to accomplish. Yeah, I mean it's good to try. And, you yeah, know, it's a, my, I lost my mother to cancer, so yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So um, then, moving on to neurological disorders, because you've got a whole chapter devoted to that, and it seems like developing treatments for neurological disorders is a particularly thorny area. So, what are some of the factors that make finding and implementing useful models? so difficult for something like Alzheimer's disease? Wow. Um, yeah, so I lost my stepmother to Alzheimer's disease, so, uh, close to home here. Uh, it's really frustrating how many neurological disorders really are essentially incurable. It is, it is really no, no real cure for Alzheimer's, for ALS, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis traumatic brain injuries, schizophrenia, we're really, you know, very limited in what we have to help these patients. The treatments we do have for neurological disorders are often discovered by accident. So lithium, for example, does seem to work for bipolar disorder, but the history of how that was discovered is very, you know, a lot of accidents or I would say, con you know, contingencies in there. Uh, for depression, oh, Ketamine, you know, is like people are now realizing ketamine and, and, and electric shock, electric convulsive shock are actually really good treatments for depression. And I don't think anyone really expected that, but they seem to work. So that's kind of, you know, strange that when it comes to the brain, we really have either nothing or things that we discovered sort of by accident. It's not entirely true, but largely true. And, and I think in part that is because maybe it shouldn't be surprising because the nervous system in humans has probably diverged more from that of any other species than any other organ system, right? I mean, our brains are way more different from that of a monkey brain than, for example, um, our lungs are different from monkey lungs. So a lot of divergence there. So... That's one explanation that's not maybe very helpful <laughs> to, to developing drugs. So uh, another way of uh, thinking about this is that when it comes to the brain, once damage has been done, it's very hard to repair. So, you know, damage to your skin or your lungs can to some extent be, be repaired. But in the brain, the neurons just, you know, once you've got, you know, all your neurons, they're, you're, you're in more or less you're you're done they don't you don't can't repair it and so what that means is by the time we discover that people have a neurological disorder so much damage has been done that you can't really treat it anymore so what people need to do is to identify earlier who is going to get the neurological disorder and then treat them really early but how do you do that how do you discover like who's going to develop parkinson's next year or you know, even with alzheimer's it's quite difficult to predict. Um, so, so you may have heard that there was an interesting study and, uh, that on uh, a clinical trial that was done on a population of people in Colombia. There's an extended family there of about 6,000 people that have a very high incidence of a particular genetic mutation that is linked to them developing Alzheimer's disease. So people said, 
okay, let's go down there. Let's test these people for that mutation and give a particular drug that we're interested in to people who don't yet have any symptoms, but they have the mutation and see if we can stop them from developing Alzheimer's disease. I think that was really interesting, a lot of promise, uh, but it, the results, I think, we, we know just recently uh, heard that uh, they're not statistically significant. I think the full report hasn't been published yet. So that's a real downer. And you may have heard that there's another drug that got a- approval from the FDA. It's called Aducanumab, or Aduhelm is the brand name. Um, that's a, It's an antibody that is supposed to remove these beta amyloid deposits from the, from the brain of Alzheimer's patients. And it does seem to work that, you know, it does remove the, the, the uh, amyloid, but they don't, you know, they don't seem to get any better. It doesn't really present, prevent the progression of the disease. Mm. So very depressing. Um, I, I have no good answers. I, I think maybe people need to start thinking that maybe, you know, because these drugs worked in mice, in mice, mouse models of Alzheimer's disease that have yeah. a lot of beta amyloid and have cognitive problems. But maybe human neurons are more fragile than most neurons, or you know, more likely to die when they're stressed. So uh, maybe maybe we're also this beta amyloid model, this idea that beta amyloid causes the disease, or is the main cause. Maybe that's wrong. People need to start thinking maybe out of the box uh, a little bit more than they have been. Yeah, and that's interesting too because that's an example of where. Um, looking at the, the, the mechanism that you were inducing, uh, you know, removing the beta amyloid, whereas that worked in animal models and it, it, that translates to humans and yet the clinical effect doesn't translate to humans. And I, I think that's often a problem in research, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, because we identify things that are somehow linked to the disease, but that doesn't mean we've identified the core cause, right? The, the primary mm-hmm. cause. And I think it's quite possible that beta amyloid is an aspect of the causal machinery that is triggered by Alzheimer's disease. But you can get rid of the beta amyloid issue and still have Alzheimer's disease because you, there's something else going on that you're not identifying. So, yeah. but so easy, easy just... for me to say, very hard to, to do, you know, and so I'm, I try to be very careful about not being preachy, you know, to, to anyone. Um, people are trying very hard to do this work well. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it wasn't a preachy book because you sort of, you gave all these considerations. And as the title said, you looked at it from, uh, you know, you looked at the matter from various approaches, the history, the philosophy and practical concerns. And um... thank you. Yeah. That, they didn't want to get too philosophical, but you know, stay anchored in the, like the real problems scientists face. And I, I do want you know, when I was thinking about the readers, like who who would want to read this book? Uh, I was thinking mainly of sort of young researchers who are still you know they they're drawn to research because they want to do good, they want to uh, you know cure diseases, uh, and they need to think about you know which model do I want to work on, and you know. They, they might be limited in their choices, but I think it's very good for them to think about what are the choices I'm making or what are the choices that my advisor is making? And maybe there are other choices. Oh. And yeah, and hopefully leading to better research. Hopefully. Or, or less money wasted or, yeah. Well, there's a lot, yeah. You know. Fewer animals used in vain. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, Georg, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I did want to ask you uh, what you're working on next now that you've got model systems not not all wrapped up, but um, but at least written about in a nice book. Yeah, it's uh, it's always difficult what to what to do next after a book because it feels like such a relief to have it done. Uh, but I'm starting a new book that's you know, a little less ambitious, I think, but it goes back to my old love of birds. I used to be a bird watcher, oh. uh, and used to work on bird brains and behavior. So I'm, I'm writing with a co-author uh, a book on bird brains and behavior uh, for a somewhat broad audience. Uh, you know. Maybe not all bird watchers will want to know about the the brain and the, the sensory biology of how birds bird behavior is controlled. But uh, I think it'll it, I think it's fun and it, it makes me feel good because I've thought about these things for a very long time. Yeah, now oh, that's really interesting. Um, as this book was really interesting, and I want to remind listeners that it's called Model Systems in Biology: History, Philosophy, and Practical Concerns, published by MIT Press, and also available via open access, uh, which is great. So, Georg, do you want to just say something else about that? Yeah, I just want to say I want to uh, congratulate MIT Press for coming up with that idea. Uh, They had uh, this idea of asking a lot of libraries, research libraries around the world, to chip in. And and if they raised enough money from the libraries, uh, then they said, okay, then we'll make uh, a whole bunch of books, not just my book, uh, available open access. And I think the libraries are very interested in open access models. And it's, uh, they've been doing that more and more with journal articles. But I think for, you know, for this to spread to books is, is really nice. Because I, I sometimes, you know, I read, I hear from people around the world, often in, in uh, less developed uh, nations, you know, it's very hard to come up with the money for some of these scholarly books in biology or medicine. Mm-hmm. They're very expensive. And so the open access uh, should really help with that. So thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I think it's great when when uh, research and scholarship can get out to as many people as possible. That and your your young researchers may not be able to afford it either. So um, anyway, Georg, it's been a real pleasure, and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, and thank you for your time and interest. <laughs>